Summit Church, Pastor JD here. I have heard from so many of you how well our campus pastors did last weekend. I know, by the way, you're trying to be encouraging and everything, um, but seriously, y'all, when I come back and you're like, oh, you should have heard so-and-so, that was seriously the best message I've heard in such a long time. Y'all, I mean, come on, Uncle JD has feelings too, you know? Uh, but I, I know it was great. In fact, I listened to some of them and it was great. Well, this weekend you are in for another treat. But before I introduce our speaker to you, who is one of Summit Church's all-time favorite guests, I want to tell you about something I am incredibly excited about. And that is our Serve RDU Week, which is now one month from today, one month from now. It is August 12th through 18th. Now, Serve RDU Week is something we've done for many years. It's where we as a church take one week out of the year, basically to do a mission trip to our community, to serve our community with the hope of developing long-lasting relationships that lead to gospel relationships and disciple-making disciple relationships. You see, the purpose of Serve RDU this week is not to give us a, a once-a-year event where we make a, some foray out into the community and then go back to isolating ourselves from our community. Now, this week is about creating an intersection for, for new opportunities to meet, to serve, and to tangibly demonstrate the love of Christ to those um, all around us in our community. You see, the hope is that this week will be a springboard into the people of the Summit Church, the members here, serving um, Raleigh, Durham, and the surrounding communities all year long. But for right now, what I need you to do is to go ahead and mark your calendar, check your schedule, coordinate with your small group, grab a friend, um, talk with your family, and then head over to servrdu.com and sign up right now. Well, like I said, this weekend we are in for an absolute delight because we have back with us for the third time, Pastor Brian Loretz. Pastor Brian is the, the lead pastor of Abundant Life Church in Silicon Valley, California. He also serves as president of the Kynos Movement, which is an organization that is committed to seeing the multi-ethnic church become the new normal in our world. Now, many of you may remember Pastor Brian as the guy who came here three years ago and preached four completely different sermons over five services because he, his words, felt the Holy Spirit telling him to. By the way, the only reason he didn't do five different ones is because I told him one of them was so good that I thought we needed to hear it again. Um, Y'all, it seems like every time Pastor Brian preaches here, God gives him the exact message that the Summit Church needs to hear at the exact time that we need to hear it. Now, I, I will warn you, he might be walking a little funny because he just started CrossFit this week. And he texted me, in fact, this week and asked me if I would take him to my CrossFit gym this weekend. And so I did. And I wore that brother out. So as he hobbles up here to the stage, I want you to put your hands together and give Pastor Brian a warm and loud welcome back to the Summit Church. Oh, goodness. Jay did, he did wear me out. I mean, that's, that's some whole nother level stuff. I hope this is a safe place. Let me just confess to you. Uh, JD's wife, Veronica, was there, and she did have more weight on the bar than me. Uh, so, uh, but I'm easing into it. If you've got your Bibles, please meet me in the book of Philemon. As you're navigating your way to Philemon, let me just say what a complete honor, joy, and delight it is for me to be here with you all. Uh, and I, as I think about my itinerant schedule, this is one of the highlights of my year, being here at the Summit Church. So, so love. J.D. Greer, and I'm not just saying that. Uh, he's one of the coolest pastors ever. Who wears a brand new pair of Jordans at the Southern Baptist Convention? Unbelievable. But God has really gifted you with a great pastor who loves you, a phenomenal leader. And if I was in a chocolate church, they'd be clapping right now, showing their love for him. Um, 
Absolutely, absolutely uh, incredible, and I just love being around him. Uh, love the friendship that is building between the two of us. Love his family. Also love what you guys are doing throughout the world. I think you guys have planted over 225 churches, and uh, every time I turn around, I'm always meeting some new leader who came out of the Summit Pipeline. In fact, in just a couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to go down to Orlando to uh, preach at Cameron Triggs's church. Cameron Triggs came out of here. Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely amazing. So I just love what's happening. If you're new and you're trying to figure out, is this the church uh, that you should be at? Let me give you a word from the Lord. Yes. Uh, Park it right here. This is a great church that is loving its world well, loving its community well. And I just praise God for the summit for the Summit Church. Uh, I just feel led. Uh, we've been, I haven't done four completely different messages this weekend. I've just done two completely different ones, uh, all based in the book of Philemon. And if there's one word I want you to write down in the margin of your Bible when it comes to the book of Philemon, it is the word reconciliation. And I just want to talk about doing the hard work of having great relationships with other people. And Philemon is the textbook. It is the handbook on that. To help us out with that, let me just read the whole book to you. Chill out. It's just 25 verses. Pick me up in verse 1. Paul writes, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker in Aphia, our sister. Most scholars believe that Aphia is Philemon's wife. And Archibus, they, they say, that Archibus is actually Philemon's son, our fellow soldier and the church in your house. Oh, wow. They've got me on a clock. 37 minutes and 27, 26. It's the last service. Why do we need this? Uh do I get stoppage time in the spirit of the World Cup? Um, all right, let me get back to it. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, verse 4, uh, always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refresh through you. Now, beginning in verse 8, he gets to the heart of the matter. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. He's buttering him up for the big ask. I appeal, verse 10, to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Translation, I led him to faith in Jesus. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he, has, he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, verse 17, make note of this. If you consider me your partner, receive, receive, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I'll repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. 
Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Now, verse 22 is the most redemptively, passive-aggressive verse in all of the Bible. Here's Paul. He's wanting Philemon to take back a guy who's wronged him, Onesimus. And I just, I just chuckle at verse 22. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Now, why is he saying that? Uh, I want you to prepare a room for me so I can stay at your house to see if you did what I asked you to do. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into it. Father, again, I am just rejoicing over the Summit Church, and uh, God, I just thank you for the leaders here and the many friends that I I personally have here, and and the reach of the Summit Church, Lord God, both locally and globally. Lord God, I, I pray over Summit Church that the days ahead will be even greater than the days in the rearview mirror. Now, Father, um, I have a daunting task in sharing the Word of God with these people. And I, I pray, Lord God, that the seed of your Word would fall on good ground. Uh, my, my aim is not to change anybody. It's not to coerce anybody. It's not to guilt anybody. Uh, God, I can't change anyone's life. I can't even change my own That's your prerogative, and it's by your power, by your spirit, that change and transformation happens. So I pray, Lord God, that you would take my feeble attempts at articulation, uh, that you would empower it with your spirit, ground it in your word, and that, Lord God, you would change lives by the clear teaching and expositing of your word, and that Christ would be exalted and lifted up. God, come by our neighborhoods, come by our homes, Lord God, come by our our hearts today and teach us this powerful thing of reconciling relationships to that end that I'm available to you. Stand in my body, think with my mind, speak with my tongue, those things you'd have us know, say and do. It's in Jesus' name I ask, amen. Once a month, Bank of America, the bank that we... um, we have a relationship with, they send us a document to our house. It's called a bank statement. Now, when we get this bank statement, my wife will pull out that document, and then she'll pull out another document called our checkbook, and she'll go through a process of reconciliation. Her goal is to make sure that these two documents are in harmonious relationship with one another. She wants there to be absolute agreement between these two documents. And I've watched my wife do this, and it can be a little stressful, because if we're off by a nickel, my my wife's personality is she ain't going to let that nickel slide. She's going to do everything she can to find that nickel. I've seen her spend well north of an hour finding that nickel. By the way, is, is anybody here, do you have that similar wiring? Would you just clap if you're just like, no, I don't let a nickel slide, I don't... Is there anybody here who, like me, is okay with a little bit of chaos? Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with a little bit of chaos, a little bit of chaos. <laughs> That's crazy. That's crazy. So, but, but my wife, I've seen her spend well north of an hour. No, no, no. We're going we're to find Thomas Jefferson. We're going to make sure uh, that there is agreement here. Uh, we, we are getting after this thing right now. And, and this process of reconciliation, watch it now, it, it can become tedious. It can become arduous. It can become very meticulous. She wants to make sure that these documents have a tight relationship. And she does this every single month. 
The tragedy of far too many Christians is we spend way much time and pay too much attention reconciling documents and not the same attention when it comes to reconciling relationships with, been, with people who have been made in the image of God. Reconciliation is not for the faint of heart. And I want to present to you as we just wade into this topic that if, if you want to know the joys of long-term, healthy, authentic relationships with other people, you better start doing the hard work of reconciliation. Why? Because all of us in here know the pain of relationships that have gone south. We all know what it's like to be a, a friend of someone and things are going well, we're hanging out and you know we're, we're enjoying life with them and things are going really well, then all of a sudden an issue comes up or we start to see their idiosyncrasies or, or, or we're confronted by their own sense of selfishness and some of us know what it's like to have roommates and we spend more money on groceries than they do and lo and behold, they drinking up all our orange juice and eating all our food and they're a little messy, a little cluttered and, and they can just be selfish, narcissistic people. And, and so what do we do? Do we just kind of kind of nurse a low-grade fever? Or are we going to actually have a conversation? All of us who are married, we, we understand what it's like. And one of the frustrating things about marriage, there is, no, there is no cruise control. You're either drifting towards isolation or you're working hard into oneness. And you got to have tough conversations. And there's difficulty there. All of us know what it's like to... To have siblings who get on our one, nerve, our one last nerve. We got one nerve left and they break dancing all over it. And you go to the annual family vacation and you hop on the plane and spend all kinds of money. And the first two and a half days, it's going really well. Then about day three, day four, you're like, oh, this is why I live on the other side of the country. I mean, I just give you a litany of examples here. Relationships with people can become, will become problematic. Why? Because Genesis tells us that there's a little thing called sin. Genesis chapter 2, the Bible opens up, and here we see a wonderful marriage, wonderful relationship going on. Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 2 that they are naked and unashamed. That there's authenticity there, there's vulnerability there, there's transparency there, there's no secrets. They're out in the open, and it's as if they're saying, I, I see the worst in you, and I still accept you. Then Genesis 3 comes along, and sin enters into the world. What's the first thing that happens? They start to hide from God, and they start to hide from one another. They go to the local Louis Vuitton store, buy some designer fig leaves, and they just cover up. The, the vulnerability is gone. The authenticity is gone. The transparency is gone. They start to hide from each other. What Genesis teaches us, and I need you to understand this, is that Genesis shows us that sin is never just personal. Sin is always profoundly social. Sin eats away at the fabric of our relationships with other people. The gravitational pull of all relationships isn't towards one another, it's away from one another. I, mean, I can just go on and on and on with example after example after example. I mean, their own kids, Cain kills Abel. Later on, their great-great-grand-whatever, uh, Jacob and Esau, they're at each other's throats, and Jacob swindles them out of the birthright and swindles them out of Isaac's blessings, and Esau hears about it. He gets ticked off, is, is, is wanting to kill his own brother, and, and they're estranged for decades. I mean, just go, in fact, the very guy who writes the handbook on reconciliation, Paul, if you read Acts chapter 15, him and another leader in the church, Barnabas, they fall out. The Bible says they have a sharp dispute. And these are the leaders of the church. So I want you to understand 
Sin is not just personal, it's social. So relationships are hard because relationships are a joint venture between two sinful people. Romans 5 excavates this great doctrine of the the depravity of mankind, which pretty much says we were all born into sin. In fact, I love what Tom Schrader, great pastor in Arizona, says in talking about how sin just colors every aspect of who we are. Tom Schrader says if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. Colors all of our lives. So relationships are hard. That's why I chuckle sometimes when I hear, I'm not picking on women, but when I hear a woman say, you know what, I just don't do well with relationships with other women. I, I, you know, I just can't, there's just so much drama. They they just bring so much drama as if you don't bring drama. (laughs) Or you hear some men complain about how hard it's to find good relationships with other men, good friendships. And I love what my, my mentor, Dennis Rainey, says. He says, the reason for that is you put two men next to each other, the natural default is to compete. Relationships are hard work. And if every time someone wrongs you, you just set up a little barrier and emotionally moonwalk away from them, you're going to wake up one day a lonely, isolated person. That friendship, that marriage you're in, you're wedded to a sinner. That child is a sinner. That in-law for sure is a sinner. In fact, can we have a Pentecostal moment right now? Let me, wig out, let me wig out you introverts. Can you just turn to your neighbor right now and say, hello, sinner? <laughs> Somebody else said that a little bit too emphatically. <laughs> so I want you to check a box. I want you to check a box. Some of you are here today. This is your first time at church, and you're not a believer, and you're, you, there's a bit of trepidation in coming to the church because, you know, um, one of the things that bugs me about the world, the world acts like the church is the only place that has a monopoly on hypocrisy. The truth of the matter is wherever you put people together, there's going to be hurt. There's going to be hypocrisy. It's at your frat house. And it's in God's house. But what's supposed to differentiate the church is not that this is a sterile environment where we don't get on each other's nerves. What should differentiate the church is armed with the spirit of God, infused with the gospel of God, we work hard towards this thing called reconciliation. To help us with this, I want us to go to the book of Philemon. It is the handbook. It is the textbook on reconciliation. Here's Philemon. He is a very wealthy individual. We understand this. Uh, The Bible talks about, Paul says, to the church that is in your house, he has a house large enough to accommodate a church. We also know that he's wealthy as an African-American man. I hate this. We also know that he's wealthy because he owns at least one slave, if not more slaves. One of the things that I'm frustrated with Paul is, uh, listen, it's impossible to come to the door of any text and divest yourself of your worldview. I cannot help but see the scriptures through my African-American experience. And as an African-American man, I get a little frustrated with Paul and Philemon because I want him to be a lot more vociferous and denounce the institution of slavery. Paul, why don't you just come out and say that it's absolutely wrong? In fact, I really believe in verse 16, Paul takes a subtle swipe at the institution of slavery. Here he is talking to Philemon, a man who owned at least one slave, if not multiple slaves. And he says to him, makes the big ask, I I want you to no longer see Onesimus as a bondservant or slave, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. 
Here's Paul. He's, he's taking a subtle swipe at slavery. It's as if he's saying, listen, take him back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And yet, here is Onesimus. Onesimus, this slave, wakes up one day and decides he wants to be free. Now, I don't think this is problematic. I don't think this is wrong in and of itself. But here's where the problem comes in. Here is Philemon. He is living in Colossae. He has his house in which the church meets in Colossae. Onesimus is his slave. But Onesimus wakes up one day and says, I want to break free. And he ends up in Rome with Paul. Most scholars tell us that in order to fund his journey from Colossae to Rome, he steals from Philemon, takes what doesn't belong to him, defrauds Philemon in order to fund his trip. This is what Paul means when he says, if he has wronged you, put it on my account. I'll take care of it. He has wronged him. So we've been in a two-part series this weekend called Healing Broken Relationships. Last night, I looked at Philemon through the lens of Onesimus. I talked about what do I do if I'm that person who has wronged someone else. Maybe I didn't mean to. Maybe I said something I shouldn't have said. I did something I shouldn't have did. Maybe I participated in the gossip, the slander, the lie, whatever it was. I was Onesimus, and I own culpability for the demise of this relationship. By the way, let's just have a moment. We've all been there. All of us in this room have played the role of Onesimus. We have inadvertently or maybe on purpose, we have hurt, offended, violated, and wounded other people. It's the nature of sin. But this morning, I now want us to look at it from the other side of the table. What is my role in reconciliation when when I'm Philemon? When I'm the one who has been wronged, hurt, offended, violated by someone else? We've all been there. Some of you are here right, na- right now, and, and you're Philemon, and you're nursing a fatherhood wound. Your dad left you at one of the most vulnerable times in your life when you were a little kid, and he's just made it plain throughout uh, the years and throughout his actions that he wants nothing to do with you. And so you've had to figure out life on your own. You, you've been wounded. You've been violated. You've been hurt. Others of you right now, you're wrestling with the infidelity. No, you're not the one having the affair, but, but you're married to a person who's betrayed you. They've defrauded you. What does God expect? Others of you, it's maybe, they, again, that friendship. They gossiped about you. They lied on you. They, they slandered you. Others of you, you're here because maybe you were Philemon at your previous church and something happened at the other church and, and, and things went down and it wounded you deeply and you're, you're here just kind of nursing your wounds on and on and on I can go. What, what is my role in this thing called reconciliation? Parenthetically, I, I want to say that for the 5% of you who've, who've maybe been sexually assaulted or abused, violated, I'm not, this message isn't for you in that situation. I think there is appropriate ways in which we can go, I can forgive you, and at the same time, uh, I, I can pursue uh, matters through, through the courts in such a way that you would end up in, in an act of justice going to jail. I think that's appropriate. God is both a forgiving God and a just God. So this is not about whether or not you should uh, repair the relationship with the person who raped you or assaulted you. I'm speaking to the 95% other situations. 
Romans 12, 18, I think every Christian should know this. It is a great verse on reconciliation. Paul says, as best, as best, as best as you can, be at peace with all people. I love this because it gives us a loophole. There are times in which I do my best. I've had the conversations. I've prayed about it. I've kept coming to the table, but it just hasn't worked out. Why? It takes two to have a healthy relationship. My question to you this morning, Philemon's, have you done your best? Have you done everything you can to be reconciled with those who have wronged you? Well, what does this look like? What do I do? I've been hurt. I've been wronged. What would God have of me? Verse 17, it gets right to the crux of the matter. Here Paul writes to Philemon, the one who's been stolen from, the one who's been defrauded, the one who's been wrong. He says, so if you consider me your partner, underline it, receive, receive, receive him as you would receive me. That word receive, it means to welcome In fact, this word receive, Paul's writing in the original language called Greek. If you were to study it in the Greek, it is most often used in the New Testament in food contexts. People are seated around the table enjoying rich fellowship over some wonderful food. In fact, in antiquity, who you ate with, with was a sign of friendship and love, affection, and admiration. That's the word Paul uses. Paul is picturing reconciliation, not as just receiving an apology, not as just saying, I I forgive you, but he pictures reconciliation as friendship. In fact, in context, he says in verse 16, I want you to take him back no longer as a bondservant, more than a bondservant, but as a brother. In other words, and catch this, Paul is saying in astounding ways, I want you to consider having a relationship that is stronger with him post the offense than before the offense. Wow. In the 1990s, Nelson Mandela became the first black president of the Republic of South Africa. When this happened, a lot of white South Africans were really set on edge, understandably so. If you know anything about Mandela prior to going to jail, man, he was given to acts of violence. He was blowing up buildings the whole nine. Some had given him the label of a terrorist. He then goes to jail, and his jailers mistreat him for decades there on Robben Island. He's mistreated by his jailer. Then he gets out. Lo and behold, he wins the election, and and white South Africans are like, man, is, is he going to take time to exact vengeance on us? All that was put to bed on the evening of his inauguration gala. At his inauguration gala, Nelson Mandela gave specific instructions that seated at the table next to him would be the jailer who mistreated him for years. The picture of Nelson Mandela, this this black man who, who is president, fresh out of jail, eating and sharing food and fellowship and friendship with his jailer, astounded the Republic of South Africa and put to fears, put to rest their fears. That's the picture of reconciliation. Paul is saying, I want you to imagine a day in which you are seated around the dinner table sharing great affection. I'm thinking of a friend of mine right now who cheated on his wife with another 
woman who was married to a leader in the church. They do the hard work of reconciliation. Years later, they throw a party, a reconciliation party. Never heard of that before. And there is the man who cheated with his wife, the church leader with his wife, dressed in white around the dinner table. See, I guess what Paul is saying here, and it's really crucial, that every act of betrayal, yes, it's devastating, yes, it's painful, yes, it hurts, but it's also an opportunity to astound the world with the beauty of the gospel. Paul says, Philemon, would you welcome him? Would you receive him? Reminds me of the words of Romans 15, 7. When Paul writes, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Same word as received, for the glory of God. Some of you are saying, Brian, this sounds so impossible. You don't understand my situation. You don't understand how deep deep the the hurt, the betrayal is. You just don't understand. I, I can't do this. I absolutely can't do this. You're right. If you could, you wouldn't need a savior. You wouldn't need the gospel. You wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. You cannot manufacture these things in your own strength. God, deliver us from a Christianity that I can do independently of God. So how do I receive someone in our last 13 minutes and 49 seconds? I hate that clock. How do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? Please give me stoppage time. How do I do this? Three things quickly. Number one, you've got to have what I call a gospel framework. A gospel framework. Look at verse 20. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you. Hear the phrases, in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. The implication here is you can't do these things independent from God, independent from Jesus. I had you write in the book of Philemon, the key word is reconciliation. Honestly, the whole Bible can be summed up in one word, reconciliation. So here's God. He creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in this wonderful environment, only gives them one prohibition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do they do? They rebel against God. They eat of this tree. Sin enters into the world. What does God do? He doesn't wipe his hands clean of them. He doesn't say, look, guys, you've hurt me. You've offended me. You've wronged me. I gave you a shot. I gave you every every opportunity, but you wronged me. I'm done. I'm tapping out. It's not what God does. What does he do? He takes an animal. He covers their sin. He covers their nakedness. Later on, he sets up the nation of Israel, and I love it. As he's setting up the nation of Israel, he sets it up with what I call a reconciliation mechanism. It's called the sacrificial system. It is as if God's saying, listen, I know you're going to hurt me. I know you're going to wound me. I know you're going to do your own thing. I know you're going to live in sin. You are all Onesimuses in so many words. But when you mess up, I'm not going to wipe my hands clean of you. Get a bull, get a goat, get a sheep, get an ox. Offer it on the altar. I'll receive that sacrifice. We'll be reconciled. The rest of the Old Testament is the story of Israel playing the role of Onesimus. They violate God. They go their own way. They're rebellious. They're stiff-necked. And not one time does God wipe his hands clean of them. Finally, things reach a zenith on a hill called Calvary where God, sparing no expense, sends his only begotten son to die on the cross for them. You are here today because God refuses to give up on you. And in some way, shape, or form, 
our horizontal relationships with other, others must tell the truth of our vertical relationship with God. If God keeps coming back to the table, keeps coming back to the table, keeps coming back to the table with we Onesimuses, how much more should we not come back to the table to those who've wronged us? I love mayonnaise. It's part of my problem. It's part of why CrossFit's kicking my hind parts now. Mayonnaise is a conundrum because it's made of two things that don't get along, oil and water. Chemically speaking, how do they get oil and water to hang out in close community with one another in this thing called mayonnaise? Well, you know how this works. Mayonnaise has something called an emulsifier. An emulsifier is a substance that pulls together two disparate entities and pulls them together in close community. In mayonnaise, the emulsifier is egg. It's as if egg is saying, come here, oil, hang out with me. Come here, water, hang out with me. And as you're hanging out with me, you now hang out closely with one another. For the believer, Jesus Christ is our emulsifier. Yes, we will have times in which we don't mix well with other people. But if you are in Christ and you are walking in Christ and they are walking in Christ, they should experience harmonious relationships, not just with him, but with one another. That is why I don't understand at my church how two people who are married to one another, who have received the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, can file for divorce on the grounds of irreconcilable differences. Every time this happens, we become a mockery to the world. What do you mean you have Christ in you, the hope of glory? So you're cool with not speaking to that in-law for years? Secondly, if we're going to welcome and receive, not only must we have a gospel framework, we must see our enemies, those who've wronged us, as actually a useful friend. Verse 11, Paul writes, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed, indeed useful to you and to me. This is a play on words. Onesimus' name literally means useful. In fact, most scholars tell us Philemon probably named him that. I imagine Philemon coming home one day and looking for Onesimus only to discover Onesimus has left. And then he's really wounded because not only has he left, but he's taken something from him. Maybe he's running the gamut of emotions. He's betrayed. He's shocked. He's then drifts off into anger and sadness. And then maybe one day he just kind of goes, didn't need him anyways. He's useless. I don't need him. Don't act like Philemon's the only one who's ever done that. We've all done that, haven't we? You've wronged me. You've hurt me. I used to call you all the time. I'd see your name come up on my phone. I'd pick up. Now, praise God for caller ID. You're useless to me. If you're, one, if you're looking for a great read at the beach when you're on vacation this summer, pick up James McBride's New York Times bestseller, The Color of Water. James McBride is a biracial child, and it is a tribute to his Jewish mother. Back in the 40s, his Jewish mother started dating this, this black man, and 
Her parents didn't like it. They pleaded with her. They gave her directives. She continued to do her own thing. Finally, her Jewish parents couldn't take it any longer, and they literally held a funeral for her while she was still living. They pronounced her to be dead, and for the rest of their lives, they treated her as dead, useless. Some of you are horrified by that story. You shouldn't be, because chances are that's exactly what you've done to others. Paul says, listen, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is useful to you. Why? Because he's in relationship with God. God loves him so much, the one who wronged you, that he saved you. Listen to me. God does not love you more than the person who wronged you. God died for you, Philemon, and the one who onesimus you. There's value there. My God brother's a world-class trained chef. We were sitting at a restaurant one night. This illustration is going to mess some of us up. And we're looking at the menu. The chef comes over, excuse me, the waiter comes over, and um, he starts to tell us the specials. And the specials sound really good. And I start to order one of the specials, and my godbrother uh, says to the waiter, cuts the waiter off and says, listen, can you give us a moment? The waiter leaves, and my godbrother is this world-class trained chef. He says, listen, Brian, I want to give you something to think about. Um, not every restaurant does this, and it's not in every case, but a lot of times what the specials are, they're, they're items that are about to go bad. They're about to be useless. And the chef doesn't want to want to be out of pocket for those items he paid money for. So what he does is he mixes them up and calls them special. I'd have messed some of y'all up. (laughs) And a lot of people order the special. Why? Because what was about to be useless when it got into the hands of the chef now becomes special. Paul says, Philemon, I want you to understand Onesimus is in the hands of God. He's special. Receive him. That person who betrayed you is made in the image of God. That person who stabbed you in the back, God sent his son to die for. It is worth a shot. So here's Philemon. He's been hurt and wounded by Onesimus stolen from him. Paul is asking for Philemon to be reconciled to Onesimus by welcoming him back. What does this mean exactly? Is Philemon to just let bygones be bygones and never deal with the truth of what happened? Do they never go there and talk about Onesimus stealing from him? Does reconciliation mean avoiding these kinds of messy conversations? No, it does not. Look at verse 18 as we close. Paul writes, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul is not just saying blindly receive him back and and ignore the offense. He says, no, 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 there's wrong here and it needs to be dealt with. I submit to you that for anyone who just receives someone back who's wronged them and you, you never talk about the wrong, you never do an autopsy on what happened, that's a cheap reconciliation that will lead to a short-lived friendship. You all understand what an autopsy is. Someone dies, and the basic question of an autopsy is, we got to take a moment to figure out what happened. 
Oftentimes we do this so we can move forward. Some of you, you've, you've ordered autopsies because you need closure. Others of you, the autopsy has happened because you need to figure out how did this person die and, and, and I just got to figure out this, you know, who murdered this person and what, I need to figure these things out so we can move forward. Others of you, maybe the autopsy was, was ordered so you can solve some sort of a medical mystery, whatever it is, but you want to take a moment, let's talk about what happened so we can move forward into health. Bishop Desmond Tutu, if I could return to South Africa in his wonderful book, No Future Without Forgiveness, in which he talks about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, he says these words. He writes, it was pointed out that none of us possess a kind of fiat by which we can say, let bygones be bygones, and hey, presto, they then become bygones. Our common experience, in fact, is the opposite. That the past, far from disappearing or lying down and being quiet, has an embarrassing and persistent way of returning and haunting us unless it has, in fact, been dealt with adequately. Unless we look the beast in the eye, we find it has an uncanny habit of returning to hold us hostage. So if you want to repair the relationship with your strange father who left you, A strange dad, you need to be prepared to sit at a table and hear your adult daughter or adult son say, you know what, can we do an autopsy? I need to know why you left me. Those of you been cheated on in marriage, you need to sit down. Say, let's run the tapes here. I want to run, I, I want to move forward. I, I need to talk about this. What, what happened? And I, this happens all the time as I help couples navigate infidelity. Sometimes the man who's cheated just roll his eyes. I, do we have to go back? Yes, we need to go on the History Channel for a little bit. You can choose your actions, but you can't choose your consequences. Maybe in that friendship. I, I, I need to talk about the gossip, man. I'm not just going to receive you back. Oh, it's covered under the blood of Jesus. No, no, no. We got to talk about this. It was Philip Yancey who said, the great author, the three greatest phrases in the English language are, I love you, I forgive you, what's for dinner? This whole message has been about what's for dinner. Sitting down at the table with those who have wronged you, that's, that's the ideal. That's what we're shooting for. In some sense, I love you is easy. I forgive you is a little bit more difficult. But getting to what's for dinner is, is impossible without the Spirit of God. This is why you got to understand as we close that technically I've been preaching this text wrong to you. I've been preaching it as a secondary application. The primary application is Philemon presents to us a stunning picture of the gospel. Don't you understand? God is Philemon. We are Onesimus. And Paul is Christ mediating a broken relationship between a holy God and sinful man. You will never do the hard work of reconciliation horizontally until you first have the humility to see yourself as Onesimus vertically. 
We've all wounded God. We've all wronged God. We've all betrayed God. There is a guilty verdict on all of us. But what does God do? He doesn't wipe his hands clean of us. He stands there like the father in the story of the prodigal son, arms wide open, ready to kill the fatted calf called his son, Jesus Christ. And to be a Christian means, armed with the spirit of God, I'm going to take the astounding picture of vertical reconciliation and display it horizontally to those who have wronged me. Easier said than done. You don't have the capacity to do it. And neither do I. That's why we need a savior. Oh, what a savior. I want every head bowed and every eye closed. All of us know what it's like to be Philemon. Right now, would you just think of that person or persons who've wronged you, hurt you? And right now, would you ask God to give you the grace and the strength to receive them? Again, I want you to hear me. I'm not talking to those of you who've been sexually abused or raped or violated. That's in the 5% category. I'm not even talking about that. But would you at least entertain the notion of what's for dinner? Because God in Christ has adopted us into his family and has seated us in heavenly places. And we didn't do a single thing to deserve it. So Father, I pray that the Summit Church would not be known as the church that tolerates people. What, what a low ethic. I tolerate you. Summit Church would be known as that church that loves. So every act of betrayal, every wound, Father, give us the grace to see it as an opportunity to give the world a snapshot of the gospel. So, Father, we live into this today. We Philemons, we, we live into this today. We need your grace. We need your strength. Supply it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.